The Bible is a tale of two cities. Babel or Babylon is the city of man, and Salem or Jerusalem is the holy city of God. They both appear in Genesis and then take center stage at the end of the age in the book of Revelation. They rise and fall and rise again. Babylon is called a mystery and the mother of prostitutes. The mysteries of Babylon are many, including how Babylonian idolatry and the spiritual prostitution it yields reaches full bloom in the worship of the Antichrist. There's nothing mysterious about Babylon's end. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. I'm Ron Jones. Something good starts right now. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Something Good with Dr. Ron Jones, lead pastor at Atlantic Shores Baptist Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. My name is Brian Davis, and thanks so much for being here. The mystery and the majesty of the book of Revelation are not easy things to untangle. The imagery is so vivid, the symbolism so complex, that even the Apostle John had to take a step back and show us the broader view. Ron takes us there now as he continues his teaching series, Mysteries of the Apocalypse, The Last Days of Planet Earth, and The Return of Jesus Christ. Online, you'll find us at somethinggoodradio.org where you can listen to the broadcast on your schedule. Download or subscribe to the podcast at Spotify, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From Revelation 14, here's Ron with part two of his Something Good Radio message, Bible Prophecy and the Big Picture. Well, sometime later, those people regathered. The, the, the Babylonian Empire, the great Babylonian civilization was one of the, one of the mighty world empires uh, that has been on planet Earth over time. It, it's one of the, the seven heads. Remember the beast of Revelation had seven heads? There were seven mighty world empires pictured in Bible prophecy, uh, starting with Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylon, Persia, Greece, those were the five, John says, that have fallen, and then there is one that is. Well, during John's time, that was the mighty Roman Empire, and then one that is to come, that is the revived Roman Empire led by the Antichrist or the beast. You follow me on that, seven heads? Well, one of those is the mighty Babylonian Empire and the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which existed around 586 B.C. when, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians besieged the city of Jerusalem and took the Israelites captive for 70 years. Factor this into your theology. A holy, righteous God uses the ISIS of His day to discipline His people and take them into captivity for 70 years. You can read about that in the Old Testament. Among them was a teenager named Daniel. Uh, Daniel was an incredible young man, and rather than bowing to the image of the king, roots of Babylonian pagan idolatry, he chose to serve the one true God of Israel to stay true to Jehovah. But Daniel was an incredible leader and administrator. He rose to power and to a place of prominence in the Babylonian culture. He was God's man in a pagan world. And he also had the gift of prophecy, and God gave him visions of the future. That's why you, you lay the book of Daniel, uh, chapters oh, 08 and through the end, 
alongside the book of Revelation. And, and there's, there's amazing correspondence between the two, separated by centuries. It's because God miraculously authored this book and revealed uh, the mysteries of the apocalypse. Now, you fast forward to the book of Revelation. Again, we're talking about some mysteries of Babylon. You fast forward to Revelation, and Babylon reappears at the end of the age. The question is, is it symbolic or is it literal? We'll talk about that, but certainly symbolically there is a religious Babylon that arises, a one-world religion that is led by uh, the false prophet. We talked about him last week. He's mentioned in the latter part of Revelation chapter 13, and, and the, the fall and destruction of religious Babylon is detailed in chapter 17. Uh, John calls this Babylon a mystery, an indication that he's probably speaking symbolically here, but he says this Babylon, this one-world religion, this amalgamation of spirituality is the mother of prostitutes, he says, because every false religion finds its roots in the ancient civilization of Babylon, which was a pagan civilization. And the way God views idolatry, he says it's like spiritual prostitution. He feels that strongly about it when we worship something other than the one true God. So Babylon, the religious Babylon in Revelation is called the mother of prostitutes. Political and economic Babylon are also pictured, first part of Revelation 13 and Revelation chapter 18. This economic Babylon where the Antichrist takes control politically and economically uh, through the mark of the beast and all of that that we discussed last time, uh, that too comes crashing down. In a single hour, the Scripture says, suddenly... Just the economy of the world that is run by the Antichrist collapses. There is a coming economic collapse, and we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Revelation 18 describes this political and economic Babylon as the dwelling place for demons. Uh, the last bit of this mysterious Babylon begs the question, is Babylon as a city mentioned in Revelation, is it a literal city that rises up from the ancient dust of the Mesopotamian Valley? And one of my former professors at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Charles Dyer, wrote a book back in 1991 called The Rise of Babylon, uh, Signs of the End Times, and he had a picture of the president of Iraq at that time, Saddam Hussein, right on the cover of it. And at that time, Saddam Hussein was rebuilding Babylon, one of his presidential palaces was in Babylon, and other excavation and building was going on, and a lot of Bible scholars were wondering, wow, I mean, I mean, is Babylon not only symbolic of a political and religious and economic thing that arises during the end of the age, but, but is it also uh, the, the, the central place where the Antichrist, you know, seats his power, and, and, and will Babylon be a literal city? Of course, all of that changed when the United States military took Saddam Hussein out, and, you know, the construction and all that isn't going as well as maybe it did under Hussein's reign. And a lot of people had questions about it, too, because of a prophecy in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. You don't need to turn there, but, but listen to this. Isaiah chapter 13, Isaiah talks about the future of Babylon. 
And all the way back during Isaiah's time, he says, and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. And so back in the early 90s when Hussein was in power, a lot of Bible scholars were trying to balance, well, what's happening here in Babylon? Is it a literal city? But you got this prophecy from Isaiah that says Babylon will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Nobody will ever live there again. Well, you know what's happened in our most recent history since then. But the reality is, uh, even back during Hussein's time, they say that it was more like a tourist attraction than a place where people were coming to live. Oh, he built a presidential palace there and some other things, but nobody actually left Baghdad or some and, and took up residency in Babylon. I, I'm of the opinion Babylon is more symbolic of the pagan political, economic, and religious system at the end of the age than it is a literal city. But time will tell. We'll see what happens. That's why it's important uh, not to take every news headline and immediately run to Scripture and say, this is that, because it's the big picture that we need to see. So that's some of the mystery of Babylon. I, I just simply say, the devil's defeat is a foregone conclusion. Fallen Fallen is Babylon the great, the prophecy says. And Revelation chapter 17, Revelation chapter 18 describes the destruction of religious, political, and economic Babylon. And we'll get into more of that in the weeks ahead. Here's the fourth and final puzzle piece I want to talk about this morning, and that is this. The wrath of God is a solemn, solemn reality. Let's read on now in verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on its forehead or on its hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is uh, another time when in the book of Revelation we come across the phrase, the wrath of God. Earlier in the book of Revelation, the wrath of the Lamb, and we had a picture of Jesus who is a lamb that looks like a lion and a lion who looks like a lamb. But you can't escape any language about the wrath of God in the book of Revelation, as uncomfortable as it might be. And I would much rather talk about uh, the love of God and His grace and His mercy than I would ever have to mention the wrath of God. But if we're going to be true to Scripture, and if we're going to have a complete understanding of the book of Revelation, we need to talk about the wrath of God. I went to one of my favorite books in my library, one that I recommend to any serious student of the Bible, any serious follower of Jesus Christ, and it's J.I. Packer's book called Knowing God. It's a classic, and he takes you through the various attributes of God's character, how He reveals Himself in Scripture and gives a very complete picture of who God is and how He operates in this world. Oh, yes, He talks about the love of God and God's mercy and His, His grace. 
Still ahead, the second half of today's Something Good radio message with Dr. Ron Jones. Something new is happening at Something Good. At somethinggoodradio.org, we just released a brand new streaming platform for Something Good Radio and Something Good Television, or what we're calling SGTV. There you'll also find Something Good Travel, Something Good Courses, and the new Something Good Digital Library, where you can search for biblical answers to your questions from nearly 30 years of Ron's Bible teaching ministry. Watch, listen, and download for free and when it's convenient for you. That and a lot more is available now at somethinggoodradio.org. Something Good exists only through the faithful prayer and financial support of friends like you. And remember, when you send a special gift today, we'll say thank you with a gift of our own, the complete audio download of the series you're hearing now, Mysteries of the Apocalypse, The Last Days of Planet Earth, and The Return of Jesus Christ. Donate online at somethinggoodradio.org or mail your gift to P.O. Box 6245, Virginia Beach, Virginia, 23456. You can also call our offices at 757-276-1099. Now, here's Ron with the second half of today's Something Good radio message, Bible prophecy and the big picture. But in a chapter about the wrath of God, Packer says this, one of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both Testaments emphasize the reality and terror of God's wrath. He asks, would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as He did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in this world be morally perfect? Those are important questions to wrestle with. He says, surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil, which is a necessary part of moral perfection, that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. Now, God's wrath is not Him throwing a temper tantrum. It's not Him, you know, losing His temper. It's, it's what God has built into the order of the universe that if you choose to reject Him, these are the necessary consequences. That's the wrath of God. And this time on earth and future Bible prophecy known as the tribulation period is a time when God pours out His wrath. Now, a lot of us as Christians, we struggle with this. We we, we struggle, how can a loving God do this? And, and And if a loving God is moral and just, how can He let such evil and suffering take place on this earth? How can He allow the shootings to take place that have taken place? Why doesn't He do something about it? Well, He has, and He is, and He's got a big plan and a big picture, and we need to understand a little bit about that. First of all, He's an eternal God, And a 24-hour day is not the same to him that it is to you and me. Now, Peter said a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. He's kind of on a different timetable. It's kind of like the difference between children and adults at Christmas time. You know, the kids, it's December 1st. Oh, we got 25 more days until Christmas. I can't believe, I can't wait that long. And the adults are saying, I got 25 more days. I got to get going on my Christmas shopping, all right? just a difference of perspective. We are time-bound creatures. We, we live in 24-hour cycles and seven-day weeks and months and years, and we're wondering, when, when is God going to do something? Why doesn't He do something now? And he's, he's operating on eternity. And every day that He delays pouring out His wrath 
on the enemies of Christ is a day that somebody on this earth can come to faith in Christ and respond to His love and His mercy. Because one of the things we learn about God as we get to know Him is He is patient and He's long-suffering. But there comes a day when that ends. And as difficult as it is to grasp, as unpopular as it is, He pours out His wrath on those that have rejected His love. Packer goes on to say, if we would know God, it is vital that we face the truth concerning His wrath, however unfashionable it may be, and however strong our initial prejudices against it. Otherwise, we shall not understand the gospel of salvation from wrath. And then he adds this, nor shall we be able to make head or tail of the book of Revelation. And he's right. We have to understand the wrath of God. John goes on to say, in light of this, verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Oh, that's so true of those in the tribulation period who come to faith in Christ. And boy, it, it costs them so much more than it costs people like you and me. But, but in every generation, we have to endure, do we not? We have to wait in faith for the completion of God's program and His plan. And yes, your feelings may be up and down from day to day, maybe even responding to the, the, to the news stories. Push that aside. Walk by faith. Let your feelings catch up. Understand the facts of the gospel and the facts of what God has revealed to us. And don't let fear eclipse your faith. It's a time for the saints to endure, John says, until God brings about the completion of His plan. I don't have time to read on in, in chapter 14, but in verse 14 and following, John now pictures one who looks like a son of man holding a sickle, and a harvest is about to take place. There are two kinds of harvests in the Bible. There's a harvest of souls, and then there's a harvest of wrath. This is a picture of the harvest of wrath. And later, an angel comes along, and verse 19 says, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest from the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. There's some debate as to whether or not that is literal, but either way, that's a lot of bloodshed following the harvesting of God's wrath, the winepress, the squeezing out of God's wrath upon the earth. I know that's not a comfortable thing to even consider or ponder today. But it brings me to this, and I want to leave you with this. There are two ways primarily that God brings us to the cross of Jesus Christ. One is by wooing us with His love. I would that every person in this room would hear, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. And come running to the cross, come running to the altar where you'll find a, a, a heavenly Father with arms open wide to receive the humble and repentant sinner that you are. He will woo us by His love, or He will warn us of His wrath to come. 
And it's not for me to say how God is going to bring us, but if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've been a cynic when it comes to the gospel, you've been skeptical of it, you've been indifferent to this person called Jesus who is revealed in the book of Revelation, I want to encourage you to come running to the cross and embrace the one who loves you. But if that doesn't inspire you to come, hear the warning of Scripture that there will come a day when God pours out His wrath. The necessary consequences of rejecting His love. I would to God that everybody would respond one way or the other to come running to the altar and to the cross today by faith. You say, well, I don't have all the answers. I don't either. I don't understand everything. And I didn't when I came to faith in Christ. But Christianity is an intelligent faith based upon reasonable evidence. There's enough evidence that God has given to you, even in the order of creation, that you can say, hmm, I'm not an accident. <laughs> Something or somebody made me. And maybe that's your first response. And then God gives you more revelation to come to a cross where that Savior died for you because He loves you so much. And He wants you to come to faith in Him. He wants you to come home. Come home to the, the place for which you were created, the paradise for which you were created. It's only available through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks so much for joining us for today's Something Good radio message, Bible Prophecy and the Big Picture. And Rod, it was great to step back for a day or two and look at the book of Revelation from a broader view. Let's talk further about the subject of God's wrath. Because the picture John paints of his divine fury is so vivid, so descriptive that Many people have trouble reconciling this side of God with his merciful and patient side. You're absolutely right, Brian, to read about the wrath of God is a profound thing. And I think it's perfectly understandable that people would ask questions like, how can a loving God do this? I think the first thing we need to remember is that there have always been consequences to disobedience. And those consequences are always, without exception, designed to bring us into a proper relationship and fellowship with God. When done perfectly, and God does everything perfectly, wrath itself is an act of mercy because it potentially keeps us from spiraling even further downward. Imagine a God or a loving parent who let us continually wander away from the right path without consequence. There's no telling how far into depravity we might slip. That's not love, that's apathy. And God is never apathetic. Uh, so God's wrath, whether in the Garden of Eden or with the Israelites in the wilderness or uh, here in the book of Revelation, is first and foremost designed to help us get back on track. But secondly, it's almost always a last resort. And that's important to remember, Brian. God tries other measures long before he unleashes his wrath. He loves us so much that he will do anything to spare us from eternal consequences. And if nothing else works, he'll choose wrath as a final alternative. And ultimately, the driving force behind everything he does, whether comfort or consequence, reward or wrath, is to save as many as he can who are willing to repent, to draw all people, if possible, to himself. 
Amen to that, Ron. And thanks for these great final thoughts on today's message, Bible prophecy and the big picture. Ron, as we wrap things up here on today's edition of Something Good, tell us what you can about tomorrow's message as you move ahead in your current series, Mysteries of the Apocalypse. Well, Brian, anytime we study Bible prophecy concerning the last days, it's very important to do so in light of what's going on in the days in which we live. If we were studying the book of Revelation, say, 500 years ago, the practical interpretations and implications of such a study would have some differences. But we're looking at it today in an age of incredible technology and unprecedented crisis in the Middle East and other parts of the world. So starting tomorrow, I'll take a look at how Revelation can be viewed through the lens of our current world climate. The message is called Armageddon, ISIS, and the Middle East Crisis. Good stuff coming tomorrow. So Brian, I hope all of our listeners out there will make it a point to be right here. Join us then for Something Good when Dr. Ron Jones continues his teaching series, Mysteries of the Apocalypse, The Last Days of Planet Earth, and the Return of Jesus Christ. For Ron and the entire team here at Something Good Radio, I'm Brian Davis. Thanks for listening.